Hey, gang. It's me, Justin Robert Young. Another interview for you. This time, our money man, Dave Leventhal from the Center for Public Integrity, breaks down all the ins and outs of the fundraising deadline announcement last week. Who's doing well? What does it mean historically? What are they going to buy with all this money? He breaks it down the only way that he knows how, which is very, very well. But before we do that, let's go ahead and remind you that the way to support this program is by going to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you get to our Patreon. $3 a week gets you two extra podcasts, one on Friday and one on Monday. That's pretty big, specifically since we just had... A pretty busy weekend with the Mueller report dropping. I'm just saying it really, really, really made a difference for those that wanted to go the extra mile. It's about the price of a cup of coffee each each week. And if you don't drink coffee, then maybe you should consider starting and then stopping and then giving me that three dollars at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. All right, come on, let's just go ahead and get on with the interview already. Enough talking about making money. Start making me more smart. Politics, 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 politics. I would like to welcome back to the podcast from the Center for Public Integrity, Dave Leventhal. How you doing? I'm wonderful. So good to be back with you. All right. Now, we uh, have have a big FEC filing that happened last week, and uh, we're going to break it down in intricate detail. Uh, Dave, uh, uh, what, what are the big headlines for you coming out of uh, the official filings here? Well, for weeks now, the candidates, Republicans and Democrats, have, have been spinning. They've been blustering all about their FEC deadline numbers and, and and really just trying to cast all of this in as rosy of terms as they possibly can to try to telegraph to the public, the body politic, that, uh, that they're doing just fine, uh, even though we have 20 candidates running and only one can ultimately win the Democratic <laughs> nomination. Uh, and, you know, the... The FEC deadline, or or the big reveal, if you will, uh, which comes on uh, April fifteenth this year, and every year for that matter, uh, you know, really kind of gives us a, the the first initial measure or barometer of not only just the finances that these candidates are raising, the money that's coming in, also to the money that they're spending, the money that they have going into this month and forward into the campaign, but it also kind of serves as a sort of a, you know, a bit of an analogy for, uh, or a metaphor for their uh, enthusiasm, uh, for the support that they have. If you've got a candidate uh, who is not raising a whole heck of a lot of money, uh, then that's a big, uh, you know, kind of a big red flag uh, for them. Uh, conversely, if you have a candidate who is outperforming expectations, uh, Pete Buttigieg, <clears throat> uh, or somebody like Bernie Sanders, who, 
you know, everyone kind of thought going in, oh, Bernie's just, he's a retread, he's 77 years old, who's going to support Bernie Sanders? Well, the answer to that, and we now know, is uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, uh, <laughs> ultimately millions of people are, you know, going to open up their wallets for Bernie Sanders and not just make $27 donations, as he likes to talk about so often, Justin, but, uh, but you know, bigger contributions as well. So, uh, you know, you've had uh, some surprises here that uh, really show that if your name is Bernie, if your name is Buttigieg, uh, Kamala Harris uh, had a very, very good uh, period here too. You're you're kind of going into the spring feeling relatively good about the base of support that you have, the foundation that you've got uh, to to build on uh, in what is just this obscenely crowded Democratic field where it's hard to keep track from day to day who's even in and out. Uh, we still could have several more left to go, as amazing as that seems, chief among <laughs> them, former Vice President Joe Biden, who yeah. uh, you well, know, casts all of this in a very different light uh, if he gets in. Let, 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 let's actually start there. The The unannounced frontrunner of this race is Joe Biden by the polls. I, I had this kind of theory that part of the reason why he didn't, he has not entered yet, while literally all the other frontrunners have already made their their impression uh, of you know and, and fundraised uh, to the tune of millions of dollars is twofold. Number one, as soon as you announce you have to be on the road. And Joe Biden doesn't necessarily, if he doesn't have to, right? If he's already polling ahead, he doesn't necessarily want to have to do that. The other side is, you know, if he wanted to spend X amount of time getting his ducks in a row, you don't want to launch right before this deadline because then the headline is, Joe Biden didn't raise as much money as as many people that raise more money than him, right? Oh, without question. And, uh, you know, is that an overriding reason why Joe Biden hasn't gotten the race? Probably not. But uh, it's also to uh, a consideration for some of these candidates. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't hurt Joe Biden uh, to wait a little longer. But the fact of the matter is Joe Biden is uh, kind of a singular candidate here. Maybe you can put Bernie Sanders in that, but Joe Biden was the vice president of the United States for eight years. He's been a political commodity going back to the 70s. Uh, he's somebody who has almost universal name recognition in this race that has people like Eric Swalwell and, uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard and, and people who you know, almost nobody in the country could uh, could recognize, uh, even if they saw them on the street. So for Joe Biden, uh, it's really a matter of he can get in when he wants. And also, too, he's not a candidate and he's leading in all the polls. So, you know, why be premature about it if in Joe Biden's uh, math here and his equation, he doesn't feel like he has to get in right now. Everyone knows Joe Biden wants to run for president. Joe Biden has wanted to run for president since he started running for president. For president, Back right, in 1988 yeah. 1988 <laughs> was his first run. Yeah. Uh, he didn't do well then. He didn't do well in 2008, but he got sort of the ultimate consolation prize, of course, in the vice presidency. And uh, here he is now just, uh, you know, really just kind of uh, riding out the uh, touchy-feely, handsy news of, uh, you know, the past couple of weeks, which has largely subsided, uh, at least, uh, you know, at this point. It uh, will almost certainly come back again. But, uh, you know, he, again, just doesn't really have any incentive at this point to hurry up and get in the race when things are all, you know, kind of going so well. And money is not going to be a problem for him because he has an established network and he has a lot of people who he can turn to to run the kind of campaign operation that he would need to run for the better part of, you know, the next year for the primary season, say nothing of the general. So 
procedural question. If I'm a billionaire and I really believe that Joe Biden is the best person to run the country, is there anywhere that I'm giving money now or am I, you know, writing out my check and then filling in the date as soon as he announces? So, you know, this is kind of a big existential question for a lot of lefty liberal billionaires right now or people who are very wealthy and who want to get into the race. You can write a check to any of these candidates immediately or you can stay on the sidelines. And in fact, we saw in the FEC reports that came out uh, hundreds of examples of people who made donations to multiple candidates. Uh, So they're not just throwing all their money or all their support behind, you know, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, uh, but they're actually giving money to uh, to multiple candidates. Uh, that's not a totally unheard of practice. Uh, we saw this in 2016 on the Republican side, uh, for example, when you had, again, a whole huge field early on of different candidates running. But uh, you know what that means for people who are very, very wealthy is that if they choose not to get involved, uh, then that's going to be okay. Uh, there's no great expectation for a lot of these candidates, particularly when they're talking such a, uh, such a strong game about small dollar donors and putting yeah. such an emphasis on, you know, the little money, uh, kind of playing, you know, money ball, small ball to get themselves uh, in, involved heavily in this race. Uh, you know, they, the, the big dollar guys can can stand to wait a little bit. The bigger question here, I think, uh, you know, Justin, is that uh, you're going to reach a point where the field of 20 or the field of 24, whatever it ends up being on the Democratic side, is going to kind of, win, you know, whittle down a little bit. Uh, people are going to get voted off the island. And there's going to be a po- point in time uh, in December, January, February, March of next year where you're going to have a smaller field and things are going to get real. Uh, so for those big dollar donors or potential big dollar donors, are they, for example, going to throw money into super PACs, which so many yeah. of these candidates are saying, super PACs are bad, they're awful, they're terrible, we do not want one, and kind of taking the Bernie Sanders approach to super PACs, which are these groups that can legally raise and spend unlimited amounts of money to support or, for that matter, beat up candidates. And as much as all these guys love to hate on super PACs and say that they don't want one and they don't want any of their support – Ultimately, if you know a super PAC just wants to form tomorrow, if you want to form a super PAC to support Cory Booker, okay, or yeah. Jay Inslee, uh, take your pick. You can do so, and they really can't do anything to stop you. Like le- so, legally, they yeah. can't do anything. Like it, it is, legally, it is they, illegal they for them to. They can loudly say, "I wish this would stop," but they can Correct. do nothing more. Correct, and uh, and we don't have any great example of that so far. But uh, I think one thing to watch, and one thing we'll definitely be watching, is whether you're going to have sort of these, you know, rogue super PACs that pop up and uh, and actually have some real money behind them. Uh, that that could change the game in a way. If, for example, and this is all very hypothetical, it's incredibly early, but if you just had some rich guys like, all right, you know, I'm going to start my own political operation, my own super PAC, and I'm just really, really going to see what I can do to support fill-in-the-blank candidate uh, in their time of need. Uh, and, and I think that becomes particularly relevant were it to happen right around the time of the early primaries and caucuses when you literally could have uh, hundreds, uh, even dozens of votes separating some of these candidates from placing you know, one, two or three versus four or five or six and yeah. effectively being, you know, bounced out of the race because they can't prove themselves in those early proving grounds. 
If we are to cast winners and losers in my mind, I don't believe that there would be much bigger of a loser narratively than Elizabeth Warren, who came in with a disappointing figure relative to what I think many expected of her going in. She has made a very big deal about not doing what is called phone time, which I found to be such a weird pledge because I think you kind of have to explain what phone time is to even <laughs> say that you're against it to the vast majority of people. If you're unaware, uh, phone time is basically when a candidate just calls a bunch of rich people and says, hey, you up? Let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. Wouldn't it be cool if you donated money to my campaign? She's pledging to never do that. And indeed, she is calling random people that donate $5 on her website and having phone time on Instagram with them, but she did place lower than many expected. Do you think that there is a connection between that, or is this just another example of an uninspiring campaign so far by her? It's a very novel PR effort uh, that she's making here, and uh, there were a few congressional candidates who kind of did this same thing last election cycle and made a bit of a deal about it. Uh, Bottom line for Elizabeth Warren, uh, two things uh, jump out at me. Number one, she, financially speaking, had, had a really lousy first quarter relative to many of her other Democratic competitors. Uh, and, you know, when you uh, when, when you raise as little as she did, uh, which was, uh, you know, measured in the mid seven figures, uh, you know, most of her money was coming from a transfer that she made from her Senate campaign to her uh, presidential campaign, which is something that you can legally do, something that other candidates did. Bernie Sanders did it to some extent. Uh, You had uh, Amy Klobuchar who did that uh, to some extent. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard did it to some extent. Uh, And they're basically taking a pot of money that they have sitting elsewhere bring it over into their presidential campaign and it spends just the same. Okay. And that, and, that, and that's, and that's as long as it's national, right? Like that's why like governors, national. governors so can't bring it because they raised a bunch of money for state office. Uh, so they can't bring that to run for president. But if you are running on national uh, for a national office, like Senate, then you can slide it on over to run for president. Right. It's like you can't bring your money over state lines. Uh, You can't transfer from from uh, your gubernatorial race or your in a couple, you know, a couple cases here, your mayoral race uh, to uh, to the federal race that you're going to be running uh, as a presidential candidate. But one thing with Elizabeth Warren, too, is that that she, you know, had a pretty high burn rate, too. So and what what a burn rate is, is basically uh, the amount of money you are spending relative to the amount of money that you're bringing in. Uh, So her burn rate was a lot higher than a lot of the other candidates uh, there, too. And that really speak to, you know, how she was spending, uh, you know, quite a lot of money on staff. She's really, really invested heavily in her ground game uh, as it is and getting people into some of the early primary and caucus states. She's been talking uh, maybe in strong terms as any of the other candidates uh, about policy. It's like somebody comes out and says, oh, you know, I'm raising all this money. And then Elizabeth Warren comes out with some obscure policy about, you know, secondary education or, you know, something that nobody else is talking about. Uh, That's the way that she's been approaching her campaign. So in a field that, again, is so, so massive and with so many candidates there, everyone's kind of looking for the little thing that they can have or they hope the big thing that's going to differentiate themselves from all the other candidates uh, like Jay Inslee. You know, his thing is environment all the time. Yeah. Everything is going to be about climate change. Uh, and and that's just his shtick. 
Andrew Yang, who's making a lot of news lately, is all about the, hey, I'm going to give everyone a thousand bucks a month, you know, and that's just going to be the way I'm going to run the country. Uh, You know, Julian Castro, who's not getting a whole lot of ink these days. He's really kind of the one candidate who's consistently, constantly talking about uh, comprehensive immigration reform uh, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, again, all these candidates are, are going to have their opportunity for the next few months, but there's going to reach a point in time where the field is going to start to uh, to uh, to slim down. Uh, we can't have everyone running for the entire race here. And that process really, in a way, kind of begins today. All right. Let's talk about the big winner. I don't think anybody comes out of this with better press than Pete Buttigieg. Mayor Pete, have you guys debated at the at, uh, you know, your, your office exactly how to say this name, because I'm convinced that he literally just agrees with anybody who pronounces it anyway. <laughs> well, it, it's like pronounce my name any, anywhere you want to just try, you know? Yeah, it, no, I, I swear to God, I've seen to say my name. That that's a good person who I like. I've, uh, I've so. seen, I've seen, I've seen like three interviews where people say it different to him and they go, is that how you pronounce it? And he says, yes. Like unblinkingly, <laughs> he just says yes to everything. But did he say it in Norwegian? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, uh, Mayor Pete, as I will call him so I don't embarrass myself, is, uh, you know, the the kind of breakout superstar. This sort of caps off, I think, a, a big sort of breakout from the pack. He, he a few weeks ago or maybe even a month ago was mentioned more among the Andrew Yang uh, a novelty candidates and now specifically with the polling he is starting to punch above his weight and he certainly outraised a lot of very 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 uh, high name recognition candidates is this significant or or might this just be a flash in the pan it is significant and he raised more than seven million dollars as a, a candidate who wasn't even technically declared uh, at that point he was still in a quote-unquote exploratory phase as he was raising this money so it does show two things number one that he's actually raising real money that means that he can hire staff and and do advertising and, and really begin to professionalize his effort. Uh, so that that's important. And also, too, it is coming in the form of a whole lot of people who are giving that money. Uh, it's uh, it's one thing to raise seven million dollars from a relatively small pool of people. It's another thing to raise seven million dollars from a whole lot of people who had given in smaller increments, hence the big focus on small dollar donors. If you've got a whole lot of people who are giving money, they are vested in that campaign. Uh, they have invested in an effort. And if you're making a donation to a political candidate, uh, the likelihood of you doing other things that are going to benefit that person's candidacy go up, uh, getting other people to get involved, volunteering, putting signs up, making phone calls, you name it. Uh, so, so there's a certain uh, importance to that uh, at, at this juncture, at this stage of the game, that is going to benefit somebody like Pete Buttigieg. And by the way, to your earlier question, how do you pronounce it? I, I think the two best ways I hear have going are uh, boot, like the thing you put on your foot, yeah. and edge, edge, like uh, a that, cutting that, edge that, or that, the guitar. That's what he has. Too. Yeah, that's yeah. what he has on his website. But then apparently his husband uh, pronounces it Buddha Judge. Like, right, like you can Buddha, do that as well. Yeah. The the deity and uh, somebody who sits in a courtroom. And, 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 so and yeah, and Judy, pick. yeah, yeah, right. Uh, or, or, or yeah, uh, Donald Trump's favorite. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, or uh, yeah, or or, or Janine. Let me ask you a question about staffs. Uh, how solidified are staffs at this stage of the campaign? Because it's something that you hear a lot about when when people start to deconstruct 
campaigns after the fact about who got who as a yeah, campaign manager or, or people become sort of folk heroes because this staffer focused on this thing and it wound up becoming a big important uh, element of it. Obviously, as soon as candidates start dropping out, the, the, the cream tends to rise to the top and the best of each campaign wind up joining uh, campaigns that go farther. But from your perspective, how much money is being spent on staffs in general right now? Well, staffing is is very important at, at this stage in the game, but it, it's a it's kind of a mess right now, uh, and it's going to be a little bit more solidified for some candidates who have people that they can bring over from previous campaigns or who may have worked with them in their offices. But uh, there, there's this whole jockeying. I mean, it's almost like the you know early solar system where stuff is flying into each other and it's just this big swirl of. You know, people who are vying to go here or there, you literally have auditions sometimes for different campaigns. And uh, and also, too, money is very uncertain. You've got uh, you've got campaigns that are really trying to aggressively staff up and are trying to go from just a handful of people to, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 staffers uh, and put people in different key early primary and caucus states and whatnot. So a lot is in flux. Uh, it is not solidified at all. Uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of uh, stability to it uh, probably for a while yet. Uh, and also, too, a lot of the people who are sort of your tried and true policy people or uh, folks who are your your organizers or, or whatnot, uh, a lot of them are already spoken for right now. They're on the payroll of one candidate, uh, which means that if you are late to the game, if you're Steve Bullock, uh, the governor of uh, Montana, and you're still considering whether to get in or out, uh, the pool of people that you can use in some of those uh, key areas or from Washington, D.C., for that matter, who are available and on the market, it, it's smaller than it would have been if you were doing this and asking these questions in January or February. Now, uh, nobody is done at this stage in the game. We are very, 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 very early. We are still roughly, you know, a, a, a year away from a lot of the major primaries. So there is plenty of time for, for, for things to change. However, and I'll use a hockey metaphor because I know you're a hockey fan. Uh, as my Pittsburgh Penguins got down 0-2 and then eventually got swept, there are some some very... There are some bad signs. You don't want two of these reports together or else people start to worry about it. Who are the candidates that didn't raise what they wanted to raise that if this happens again in Q2 or again in Q3, we're going to really start worrying about whether or not they're going to be viable? Yeah. You know, if you're Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand uh, of New York, you're you're probably not feeling too great about uh, your prospects right now. Now, Hoop Springs Eternal for any of these candidates. And of course, it is so early that anything could happen. I am constantly reminded of the 2008 experience with John McCain, where in the summer of 2007, I mean, he was he was literally nowhere. It looked like he was going to have to just fold his hand because staff had left him. He had no money. It, it, it looked as bleak as bleak could be. And he had this massive uh, maverick style comeback. And of course, the, the rest is history. And he became the nominee. And, uh, you know, then Sarah Palin happened. And, yeah. And then Barack Obama happened. But, you know, be that as it may, he, he did make a just a miraculous Lazarus-like comeback during 2007 at a stage which is still months away when you uh, parallel that, the, the point of time, point in time that, that we are right now. But to get back to Gillibrand, I mean, her fundraising was, uh, was 
very, very low. Um, most of the money that uh, she raised uh, and therefore spent was coming from a transfer from her Senate campaign to her presidential campaign. Uh, her polling numbers are you know, one percentage point, uh, in some polls, zero or below one percentage point. So, you know, we can laugh at like the, the Andrew Yangs and the Mary, uh, Marianne Williamson's and some of the candidates who seem to kind of be on, on the fringe of, uh, uh, of being viable here, but that's where Kirsten Gillibrand is right now. And she's yeah. a sitting U S Senator. So that that's not, not at all good news for she, her. She also had the most unfortunate rollout, right? Like where she, it, she she announced on a Sunday in front of Trump Tower and it was the Sunday of not even the Mueller report being turned in, but the Mueller report summary being turned in where uh, it was widely agreed to be a, a, a day of celebration for conservatives and Trump fans. Uh, uh, that was that was man so far. That, that's the biggest snake eyes of the campaign that I can think of. I, I I might have to agree with you. I mean that that it was just uh, for her. It, pretty much everything you know that that could go wrong kind of did. Uh, and you always want to find a moment. You can never predict it. You can never draw it up on the drawing board. But uh, you, you want to try to game it if you're running for president, where your announcement is at least going to get covered. Uh, yeah. Or, or or you're going to get decent coverage for it, so you can get. A splash for a moment, uh, as fleeting as that moment may be, and for uh, Senator Gillibrand, that uh, that really didn't prove to to be the case. Uh, and and she just has yet to catch fire. She's really trying hard to uh, to present herself as sort of the candidate for women, which uh, plays on very much uh, you know attack that she's taken in the Senate. Uh, she set up a, a pack years ago that has been a very women focused pack. So uh, that that's kind of the the niche that that she apparently is trying to carve out, at least at this point. She had, uh, she had, really she had, she had not- to jump on Biden. Then. I mean, that's that's my thing is that if you're going to live that life and somebody's and, and your front runner is, you know, out here uh, semi apologizing for for smelling women's hair and giving them unsolicited back massages. Like that's you got to you got to jump on that if you don't. And and if he gets in the race, uh, it'll be most curious to see how how that plays and how aggressive she's going to be. I mean, she doesn't have a whole lot to lose at this point. Yeah. And in uh, you know, it, it would serve to reason that if she's going to stick in this or wants to stick in this for the long haul and uh, isn't going to be, you know, folding her. Someone someone's going to do it. Fall, she's got to do it. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. One of the female candidates is going to do it. Uh, uh, because he's the front runner and that's what you have to do. All right. Is there anything among that, that 1% fringe that you saw that was maybe encouraging from a financial standpoint? Uh, you know, there's a, a little bit for, I mean, Andrew Yang is, uh, Yang he's getting Yang. a lot of press. He, he's making news. Uh, he just had a rally here in Washington, DC, which attracted, uh, a four-figure crowd. Uh, you've got some people who are very curious about uh, his campaign here. So, uh, in, in it looks like he's going to qualify for the Demo- early Democratic uh, debates this summer too. And and this is uh, important because it does tie directly into money here. Uh, the Democratic National Committee has done something that it hasn't done before, which is set uh, really a two-pronged threshold for qualifying for the early debates uh, that it, uh, it's going to be conducting. And one of those uh, qualifying factors is the ability to raise 65,000 individual uh, 
contributions or get 65,000 individual contributions uh, across at least 20 states uh, with a certain number of people from each of those states. So if you can cross that threshold, regardless of where you're polling, you could be at literally at zero. And if you cross that threshold, then then you're on the debate stage. Okay, so that's number one. Yeah. The other prong is that if you get at least one percent of uh, of the vote or the polling uh, in uh, a number of different polls that uh, that you can draw from, then you too will also be on the debate stage. So on Andrew Yang, it looks like he is well on the way there, maybe even in, in better shape than some of the other candidates. Uh, and, and Marianne Williamson, the self-help guru uh, who we mentioned before, it looks like she's you know, not quite there, but uh, also uh, getting enough uh, support or interest to likely qualify uh, from the donor threshold if uh, she can maintain the pace that she's on. Uh, but she's kind of pretty much uh, the two of them where Julian Castro is, which uh, he's another one who is, you know, talked about being a vice presidential candidate for Hillary Clinton not yeah. uh, three years ago. And now he's, you know, kind of in the, you know, also ran pool uh, at this point or, or the the one percenters in, in the wrong direction. And he's somebody who, uh, you know, was uh, mayor of San Antonio. He was a cabinet official in the Obama administration. And now he's a whole lot of nowhere. Uh, so his star has really dimmed in a major way, maybe not uh, quite as uh, much as Kirsten Gillibrand, at least at this point, since he's not a sitting U.S. senator. But uh, he can't be feeling really, really good about much of anything at this point, including his financial numbers uh, only brought in about $1.1 million, which is just a tiny, tiny fraction of what Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris. And uh, certainly we haven't even mentioned Donald Trump here, who brought in more than $30 million during the first quarter yeah, that, uh, of that, this year, which builds upon a huge, huge haul that he's made over the past two years. Because what is unique about Donald Trump among the 17 million other things that are unique about Donald Trump? Well, he started running for president on the day of his inauguration. He filed paperwork with the Federal Election Commission to go forth with Trump 2020 on January 20th of 2017. So he's been running for president, raising money, conducting fundraisers, conducting rallies uh, ever since he became president. So he's created an, in a very real way, a permanent presidential campaign for himself, which is paying dividends uh, in a major way for him at this point in time. Is that a big haul for Q1 uh, a year out? Oh, it's huge. Uh, $30 million is... Uh, is a, a massive amount of money. Bernie Sanders, in comparison, uh, raised uh, roughly 18 million. Uh, so it's uh, more than any of the other Democratic candidates uh, individually. I think it was it was, and, it was it was bigger than if you stapled Bernie and Beto together, right? Yes, uh, and if you took a lot of the you know kind of uh, mid-tier candidates, uh, so far as you can call anyone anything in any tier at this point, uh, it, it would be you know more than. 10 of them put together. Uh, so it, it's a, he, sure, he's the president of the United States, uh, but he's been able to do a couple of things that are uh, have been wildly successful. Number one, this is somebody in Donald Trump who has been slapping his name on just about anything you can slap a name on, from hotels and buildings to stakes in vodka. And he's doing this with his presidential campaign, too. He's a master merchandiser. And every time somebody buys a $40 Make America Great Again hat from the official Donald Trump website, that's money that goes right into Donald Trump's campaign coffer. It's not going into the ether. It's not going to, you know, uh, save rescue animals or anything no, like that. Yeah. It's going for a political purpose. And uh, he's been doing that consistently and constantly for 
two years now. Uh, and Donald Trump, uh, you know, is sitting on right at this point in time, $40 million that he has waiting in reserve at a time when all these other candidates largely, save for the ones who are either self-funding, like John Delaney, the former congressman who is also kind of in that zero to one percent nowhere right now, uh, but is very wealthy and is self-funding his campaign to a large degree. You know, Trump is not having to self-fundraise or self-fund anything right now because yeah. he's had so much success getting money from other people, uh, which is, you know, in a way kind of remarkable in itself, uh, in and of itself. Uh, if you listen to what Donald Trump was saying back in 2015, when he was first running for president and saying, I'm a billionaire, I am rich. I don't need anyone else's money. You lobbyist, you rich special interest person go away because I don't need you. I'm Donald Trump. And then of course that all changed within a year's time. And he's running a very, very different kind of operation now and a very successful one, regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump. Yeah. That was my big question on, on the podcast last week was he ran a lean campaign comparatively and, and, and really dominated in terms of, uh, you know, what is called earned press. You know, he really made the, the media work for him. Uh, but this time he's going to have I'm sure his instincts will always be to stay in the center of media attention. I don't think he'll ever stop doing that, but he's going to have a lot of money this time. And he's going to have his pick of speaking of the staff and consultants. He was picking, you know, scratch and dent uh, options leading up through 2016. And now he is going to have his pick of the litter. He will. And there are pros and cons to being the president of the United States. When you are Donald Trump, the businessman running in a crowded Republican field and you'd never run for office before, you're the ultimate novelty. He was the ultimate novelty. He was treated as entertainment, uh, even by some media organizations such as The Huffington Post, which quite literally came out and said, we're not covering Donald Trump in the same way as the other candidates because we don't consider him to be a serious candidate. I'm paraphrasing, but that was yeah. you know, the general sentiment that, uh, that that was being put forth at that point. Well, I mean, he was, he was hosting Saturday novelty. Night Live. Like, yeah. I don't think that, that uh, Lauren Michaels, especially where, where the tenor of that show has gone right. now, right. would have would have done that if they believed he was a credible threat. But you can only be a novelty once, okay? And Donald Trump is uh, he is many things, but he is not a novelty right now. So he's going to be running, um, perhaps we can expect on many of the same issues that uh, he ran on. You're going to hear about the wall. You're going to hear about uh, foreigners. You're going to hear about, uh, you know, Mexico. You're going to hear about immigration. You're going to hear about the economy and trade and jobs. But at the same time, too, he's president of the United States. This is a president who has never at any point in his presidency cracked the 50 percent uh, threshold for public approval. Uh, and the big question for him is all the money that he's raising, all the support that he gets from his core supporters. Is he going to be able to branch out uh, beyond what has just consistently been kind of in the 30s, 40s percentage point approval doldrums, uh, never to, you know, rise above that. Uh, that may not be enough this time around, but do not under any circumstances count Donald Trump 
out of this race uh, simply because he's also been able to do something that just about nobody else has been able to do in modern history, which is win the presidency with no prior political experience. So it's uh, it's just going to be a fascinating year and a half going forward for all sorts of reasons. But uh, yeah, we've never had a presidential candidate like Donald Trump running uh, as a first-time candidate, and we've never had a first-term president quite like Donald Trump uh, who's going to be entering the teeth of this race with all the things that have happened over the past two years, uh, the Mueller investigation right uh, at the top of the heap. Yeah. Uh, All right. So based on what we've seen in Q1, what is a number that will make Joe Biden feel good if he gets in Immediately. And by the way, full uh, 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 full full uh, confession, we are recording this before Easter weekend. The rumor is that Joe Biden might announce sometime within there. So by the time that this airs, Joe Biden might already be in. But let's assume that he is not. Uh, uh, what does he need to raise by the time that Q2, the next fundraising deadline, comes around based on what we've seen in Q1? So for Q2, you know, you're you're going to have all these candidates, first of all, uh, having a full three months um, in, during which they can raise money. you got to remember that many of these candidates, uh, well, actually, uh, almost all of the candidates uh, had a partial fundraising period. Uh, the an- announcements of their dollar figures, their money in, their money yeah. out uh, come on a quarterly basis at this point in time, all throughout 2019. It goes to monthly in 2020. And, uh, you know, when you had some of the candidates getting in in February and in March, uh, they didn't have as much time as some of the others to actually generate money. So we're going to get we're going to go from a you know an apples and oranges uh, type of situation in the first quarter of this year to, by and large, uh, an apples to apples comparison, save for Joe Biden or uh, a couple of the other folks who, who may or may not get into the race. But again, by and large, you'll have an apples to apples comparison. And I, I think you know if these candidates over the period of three months, uh, if some of them are struggling to put up uh, high seven figures, uh, low eight figures, uh, then people are going to start scratching their heads uh, saying, all right, our, our, if uh, if a sitting senator can't raise, you know, five million bucks here, then yeah. what are they doing running for president? Are, are they really somebody who's going to be uh, a serious candidate uh, going into the, the primary season? And are they going to be a candidate who's going to have enough uh, support and enthusiasm against Donald Trump? Now, you're going to have some Democrats say you could put up a scarecrow against Donald Trump and there's going to be more enthusiasm for that inanimate object than there would be for Donald Trump with the general electorate. But we're, we're not in the general election right now. We're in the primary season and you're in this intramural competition where money matters because money is life. <laughs> it's lifeblood. It's yeah. staff. It's the ability to communicate, it's ability to reach out, it's the ability to organize and to get people out to the polls and and to to basically build a a situation for yourself that's going to give you a good shot of finishing in the top three, four or five in Iowa and the same for New Hampshire and then South Carolina and then in Nevada. And and then you've got California, too, which is very daunting for some of these candidates uh, because California, which used to be a late state, is now an early state, yeah. and Texas is going to be early on the agenda too. So, you know, you got a lot of people wondering. All right, well, how am I going to? If I'm a Democratic presidential candidate, how am I going to compete against a sitting senator from California in Kamala Harris? Come the California primary, where the delegate hall is huge. Okay, and then you've got. 
the same equation for Beto O'Rourke and, and perhaps to some much smaller extent, Julian Castro saying, OK, that's their home turf. They're from Texas. How am I going to compete against and, that? And also, uh, I mean, not, not to mention in terms of the money, you're talking sure. about very expensive media markets. Sure. Uh, if, if it is expensive to buy ads on, you know, Des Moines television, it is uh, exponentially more uh, to play in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Dallas and Houston. Which raises the whole issue that we talked about uh, early in the conversation about, well, all right, uh, what was a very, very easy way to get air cover in a massive state like that, that that has multiple, multiple major media markets? Uh, well, OK, if you got a guy who's got five million dollars or somebody who's willing to spend seven, eight figures to fund a super PAC that literally its only role is to buy up airtime and run ads for a candidate or digital ads for that matter as well. Uh, that's a real efficient way to do it. And you don't have to collect your money in increments of a maximum of $2,800 per contribution. You can, you can have somebody write a check for you for $10 million overnight and off to the races you go. So that's going to be a big issue for these candidates when they're really, really in that ultra uber competitive environment and are trying to win. Okay. You know, nobody's running for second place here. Okay. Uh, yeah. well, arguably, if you want to be vice president, perhaps. But, you know, point is that you, you've got to compete. And if you can't compete, if you don't have the resources to do it, or you're immediately cutting yourself off by saying super PAC never, uh, that, that's going to be a bit of a pickle for some of these guys, uh, perhaps at, at that point in time. All right. So what? Beto has the, 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 the record right now, the belt right now, when it comes to t first 24 hour fundraising, right? Didn't he do like uh, six or seven or something like that. I mean, he he is the you know undisputed uh, WWE of politics champion right now for fundraising on a couple of measures. He's coming off a U.S. Senate campaign where his campaign yeah, raised was more money than any other in history, even in a losing effort, not counting people who have self fundraised or self funded. Uh, and and then he's coming in with massive numbers uh, on his first day. Now, ultimately, he raised. Uh, more than nine million dollars, very, very healthy, uh, and right up there with uh, with, with the the top folks uh, on the yeah. Democratic side. So put him in tier one for fundraising, and, and but, but that but that that means that means Biden's got to go over ten, right? Oh, easily. Oh, like oh, yeah, and easily. I don't think he will have I, a I mean, problem I, doing that. But but just I, just to I, give I think context, Biden, Biden could raise ten very in, in a relatively short period of time, given the network that he has uh, and. And, you know, it, his network is the, to some extent, the Obama network, which was a fundraising juggernaut uh, that, that is the, you know, basically the, uh, the gold standard uh, for, for Democrats uh, as much as Hillary Clinton uh, and, and in certain ways even more so in terms of what he was able to do early on uh, in, in his campaign in, in 2008. So, yeah, you know, Biden should be OK financially. Uh, but is he going to be able to maintain that? Is he going to be able to get uh, some of those big funders? And, and he might be less squirrely about having big dollar donors come in and help in certain ways and and not be in sort of this arms race of how many ways can I not take money from people? No, I don't want corporate PAC contributions. No, I don't want regular PAC contributions. No, if you're a special interest of some sort because you work for an oil company, I don't want your money. You have a lot of these candidates who are really just trying to compete with each other for pools of money that they can't take. And Elizabeth Warren is very much at the vanguard of that too. 
All right, my guest, Dave Leventhal, Center for Public Integrity. Thank you so much for uh, breaking these numbers down. I will follow the money with you anytime, Mr. Young. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>